Today's reading is from Psalm 122. Hear now the word of the Lord. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the Lord's house. Now our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city, joined together in unity. This is where the tribes go up, the Lord's tribes. It is the law for Israel to give thanks there to the Lord's name, because the thrones of justice are there, the thrones of the house of David. Pray that Jerusalem has peace. Let those who love you have rest. Let there be peace on your walls. Let there be rest on your fortifications. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, peace be with you, Jerusalem. For the sake of the Lord our God's house, I will pray for your good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to be in worship. We thank you for this scripture that we've heard. We thank you for the general conference and for the results of it and pray your blessing on these new bishops and the leadership of the denomination that they may serve us and all God's people throughout this country and the world. Lord, we thank you for yourself. And we pray that we will meet you afresh this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, as you know, the scriptures that uh, are being used for this summer's sermon series are from uh, the Psalms. And uh, that is one of the poetic books of the Bible. And this morning's psalm is Psalm 122, which is called a psalm of ascent. And why it's called that is because it was used as a poetic song that the Israelites sang as they went up toward, ascended toward Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem, uh, which is also called Mount Zion, it's on Mount Zion, the temple or the Lord's house is on Mount Zion. It's a mesa. And it's up high, and from every direction, any direction, to get to Mount Zion, to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up a hill. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to go up. And so as the pilgrims, three times a year, were required, faithful Israelites, were required to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the religious feasts. And they had to go up, and as they went together, they would sing these psalms of ascent. And so 122, Psalm 122, is one of those songs that they were singing. And on the way, they sang it. And so this morning psalm, if you will, is a poetic song intended for God's people as they participate in worship. And since we are also participating in worship, now granted, we're hundreds and hundreds of years after those people were singing it, but nonetheless, it's similar for us. We're also participating in worship. And so, in a sense, then, Psalm 122 is for us, too. It's a way for us to try to understand what it is that we would do as we go up to worship. One more thing I'd like us to remember as we look at this psalm. Ever since the New Testament times, Christians have understood the term Jerusalem or the city of Jer Jerusalem metaphorically or symbolically as meaning the church because Jerusalem of course is the place of worship and so whenever wherever we worship which is the church 
can be seen as a kind of Jerusalem, a kind of spiritual Jerusalem. And for all through the New Testament we see this, and then we've seen this throughout the history of the church, the people refer to Jerusalem as the church. Not just the local church, but also the church universal, the church throughout the world. And so when we read Psalm 122, which is a description of ancient pilgrims going up to the temple in Jerusalem, it can be understood as an analogy to our spiritual pilgrimage toward God in worship this morning, even here today at First Free. But before we get into the scripture, the specifics of the, te of the text, I'd like to start off with a couple basic questions for you. Why do you come to worship? Why? Duty? Obligation? Is it your family's tradition? Is it because scripture mandates it? Is it a habit? Um, because you're supposed to? <laughs> How do you answer the questions of those people who are your neighbors or your co-workers who don't go to worship and they wonder, why in the world do you do that every week? Or what about Christians you know who used to go to worship and don't anymore? And I'm sure you know some of them. Actually, I decided to use this psalm and to talk about worship because I've had so many conversations with millennials and Gen Z young people recently who say that they're followers of Christ but they don't really see the need to come to church anymore. They say to me, you know, thank you very much, but I can pray and worship God on my own. And so I wonder, gee, I wonder what God really thinks about that. And what is God saying to us about the need for worship? Why do we come to worship anyway? Well, Psalm 22 is a guide. A guide that can assist us with all these thoughts and questions. And so I really would like it if you would, I'm going to invite you to actually open those pew Bibles that are there in front of you and follow along because we're going to look at this pretty closely and I would love to have you actually look at the text. It's on page 766, Psalm 122, it's not a long psalm and I want us to look at this text and think of it. Uh, and think about how we can gain insight on how God's people today should approach worship. So the first verse sets the tone for the entire psalm. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the Lord's house. Well, remember, this is a worship song. That's a pretty nice line, cool line for the beginning of a worship song. I guess we could do that, you know, next week. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the Lord's house. It's a good song. There are two things I'd like us to notice about this verse. First of all, David, who uh, the text says was the author of this psalm, is really happy about going to church. <laughs> He's thrilled to be in the Lord's house. When someone reminds you that it's time to go to the Lord's house, do you rejoice? Is the first emotion that comes to mind when people say they're coming to church an expression of gladness? Do you delight in worship? I hope so. And the second thing to notice is that David wasn't going up to the Lord's house by himself. He was going with a whole group. They were walking and singing and worshiping God as they were moving up towards the temple. The worship of God, my friends, is never an isolated endeavor. 
From the beginning of the Bible, the praise of God has always been a communal enterprise, never an individualistic practice. Now, of course, we can and should spend devotional time with the Lord. But that can never substitute for worshiping with a community of believers. Worship thrives when we praise God with other people. Why? Well, because we gain strength from fellow Christians, from other believers. And also, if we're by ourselves too much spiritually, we can get in our own bubble, in our own isolated way of thinking. And that's never a good thing because we are so prone to self-deception. <laughs> we need one another to challenge us, to encourage us. Because God designed us for fellowship, not alone-ship. <laughs> Psalm 122 reminds us that there's joyfulness when we meet for worship. And whenever and wherever we have the opportunity to be with Christian brothers and sisters, we should rejoice with those who say to us, let's go to the Lord's house. And when you're tempted to think the church is inconvenient or maybe not so meaningful, don't forget that there are millions of people throughout the world who would be thrilled to be able to worship openly and freely the way that we do every week. They rejoice whenever they're allowed to worship. Five years ago, I had the opportunity to go to China. And on Sunday, I went with a group of Christians who were going to church to worship. We went in a van that was darkened and covered. We went along this road. They parked. They very quickly and carefully asked me to get out of the van quickly. Please move over into the building as fast as you can. They ushered me hurriedly up three flights of steps. There were men along the steps. I realized later that they were watching, watchmen, uh, watching for anyone. They, we entered into a room. I entered into the room quickly, and when I went in there, there was a small room. There were 60 or more people in that room, and they were all waiting so, and with anticipation. And when the, word, when the singing came, it was with more enthusiasm than I've ever heard in any setting, except it was in these hushed, whispered tones so that no one outside could hear them. I later found out that 11 of the 12 leaders of that fellowship had been imprisoned for leading worship. Several of them for over a year, some of them tortured. Those people rejoiced when people said, let's go to the Lord house, every one of them. Their worship convicted me. Their, the excitement of their wish, worship convicted me. And I wondered, do we have that encouragement, that excitement, that interest in worshiping with our believers so much so that we would, that we would be able to say to ourselves, Yes, I'm willing to be persecuted. After verses 1 and 2 speak about rejoicing with others who are going to the Lord's house, then we see verses 3 and 4 of the psalm offer another interesting perspective. 
on the theme of worship. Jerusalem is built like a city joined together in unity. That is where the tribes go up, the Lord's tribes. Worship, it says here, takes place in a city joined together in unity. Another way of translating this verse is that Jerusalem is bound together firmly that it might be one whole. Not H-O-L-E. <laughs> W-H-O-L-E. Jerusalem was intended to be a city of unity. A city bound up so firmly together that all the different people who went there to worship might become one whole. That was God's purpose, God's ideal blueprint for his temple. But by the time of Jesus, we already know that Jerusalem was not becoming this ideal. It was not a city of unity. In fact, we read in Luke's gospel that Jesus got to Jerusalem, and what did it say? It said that he observed the city and he wept over it. Why? Because of its unfaithfulness and its violence. Even today, Jerusalem is not a city joined together in unity. We know that although many people still go there for pilgrimages, it's a city torn by division, ethnic and religious rivalry. It's a place of unsafety. It's not a place that's together in unity. How can such a torn and messed up city be the place that God has designated for worship? To extend this idea even further, how can we view Jerusalem as a metaphor for the church when we see that the church is supposed to be joined together in unity? We are supposed to be a place where all tribes, all people groups, come together, come up to, the Lord, up to worship, all the Lord's tribes. But in reality, we know that the unity of the church doesn't exist either. What do we read about in the paper? We read about that the church is full of hypocrisy, that, it's, that it tolerates abuse or bigotry. We understand that throughout its history, the history of the church has done some shameful things. Why would anyone continue to support such an institution? But you see, David here, the author, saw something more. He knew about all the mixed messages and the problematic reputation of Jerusalem, and yet he still dared to announce that Jerusalem is built like a city joined together in unity. And even more so in the New Testament, we have all these references to Jerusalem about being the place where God's people, the church, is brought together in unity, even though the New Testament writers knew full well that Jerusalem was not that kind of place, and in fact the church was and is not that kind of place. They didn't focus on the problems of the institutions that people have messed up. Instead, they proclaim the ultimate reality of what God's future is for the church, of what God intends for us. See what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about the church as symbolized by Jerusalem. You've drawn near to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, to countless angels in a festival gathering, to the assembly of God's firstborn children, 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This scripture asks believers to draw near to the, to, to the true church, which is compared to a city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Just like worshipers who went up to the temple in order to worship God, so the eternal, the eternal church will feature, it says, countless angels in going up to a festival gathering where Jesus is enthroned. God says that this is how the church should be, and in fact, it will be. And we are the ones, we, folks, we, the church of today, we are the ones called to bring about this city of the living God. Even though we recognize that the church that we know now is a very flawed and human structure and extremely far from being perfect. Hey, there's another New Testament passage. Actually, there are many, but one more that I'd like to show you where we read a description of the ultimate reality of the church. There was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every tribe, nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You can read further yourself. This church, described in the book of Revelation, it's where the tribes go up. It's just like Psalm 122, where the tribe, all the tribes of the Lord, and they come from every nation and people and language. In this church, all are joined together in unity. This is the kind of church that I hope for, don't you? This is the kind of church we're called to help the Lord to bring about here and now. The next part of the psalm goes on to explain what it is that we're expected to do when we go to Jerusalem. After all, what is God's expectation when we come to worship? What does God ask us to do? Here's the scripture. It is the law for Israel to give thanks there, there in Jerusalem, to the Lord's name. The object of the feast, the reason why the folks were going up, ascending up to the temple was in order to give thanks to the Lord's name. Likewise, our first task, our first task when we come to worship is to give thanks to the Lord for all his gifts to us and to recognize that everything that God is doing for us and has done for us and will do for us. Our role in the church, I'm afraid, is not always that. I'll just admit for myself. Sometimes it feels like I come to church to get a particular personal benefit from the Lord. Kind of a private spiritual uplift. <laughs> or maybe I come to church to see if there's some kind of a handout that God's going to give me today. Or even worse, sometimes I come to church and I complain about something that I don't like in the service. I'm sure you've never done that. But look to what the scripture says in Psalm 122. Our role is to give thanks there. Give thanks there, if we could go back to that scripture. Give thanks there to the, go back to the one we just had. Give thanks there to the Lord's name to be jointly grateful for God's loving kindness and mercy and grace. But we do move forward, and the psalm moves forward in verses 6 through 8, where 
David continues to talk about the city of Jerusalem. Pray that Jerusalem has peace. Let those who love you have rest. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, peace be with you, Jerusalem. Remembering once more that Jerusalem can be seen metaphorically as the church. We see in these verses that we are the ones who are supposed to pray for, to seek peace in Jerusalem, the place of worship, so that those who love to worship God will find rest. We're to seek this peace and rest and pray for peace and rest just like David was for those processing up to the Lord's house. In our worship, in our own spiritual pilgrimage to the Lord's house, we have an obligation to help establish a community of peace and rest for everyone. The two terms that are translated here into English as peace and rest are actually Hebrew words, shalom and shalvah. You see those words written there, shalom and shalvah. Shalom, you've probably heard before. It's a very popular, well-known word from Hebrew. And we often translate it as peace, but peace is really inadequate, especially if you think of peace as just the absence of conflict. Shalom is so much deeper than peace. It's wholeness. It's well-being. It's a balanced life that we experience when all is good and well in our lives. And the second word you probably haven't heard of so much, shalvah, or shalva. <laughs> um, my Hebrew pronunciation is, uh, anyone who knows it well will probably correct me on that, but shalvah. And shalvah is an interesting word because it really means more than rest as well. It's leisure, feeling secure, feeling safe. I think of it as like when you go on vacation with your family and your loved ones and you finally don't have any of the stresses or anxieties, hopefully, from work or from other things and you're actually relaxed. That's shalva. Isn't that what you would like? That's what I like. <laughs> a place and a time of shalva, of rest. Think about that place. That's uh, where, those, where we have those lack of anxiety. That's what we're supposed to experience in worship. That's what we have the opportunity to try to establish for other people in worship, an atmosphere, an environment of shalom and shalva. I asked my wife, Cindy, about when she has been able to worship the most, when she feels most relaxed and able to be free to worship. And it's interesting, because I thought she'd give some example from here or from another church when, years ago when we were at another church. No, <laughs> she mentioned our small group that we go to weekly. Our small group is made up of eight, nine people. It's fluctuated a bit over the years. And we've been at a part of it for 10 years. It's not really a church, right? But we do pray, we study scripture, we uh, do things that are worshipful. And so in a sense, it becomes a place of worship. 
But when we were first a part of this group, we have such different points of view and such different perspectives, different political convictions. We're really not like each other in many ways. And so early on, Cindy told me that she actually didn't open up very much, and it wasn't a place where she felt like she could be very secure. But over the years, we've shared so many things. There's been deaths of spouses and parents who've passed away, and we've cared for each other, kids with struggles and different things going on, even conflicts among some of our own folks together. And through all that, there's been a deep trust that's developed. And Cindy said now she feels like she can worship God unreservedly in that space because she knows that in spite of her shortcomings, any of her foibles, people accept her for who she is. That's a sense of shalom and shalva, peace and rest. Giving thanks to God in our worship can take place whenever we know that we are whole and secure, when we feel peaceful and restful. Um, <clears throat> the ability for people to worship forthrightly, without reserve, occurs when anybody feels shalom and shalva. But what are the circumstances needed for that to occur? How do we get to the kind of place in our worship where we can experience that? Understanding how peace and rest can take hold in a community, in our community, leads me back to a verse that I intentionally passed over at first. Verse 5. The scripture says that we're able to give thanks to God. Why? Because the thrones of justice are there, the thrones of the house of David. Wow. At first glance, I don't know about you, but this verse seems completely out of context. What in the world do thrones of justice have to do with worship? What do thrones of the house of David have to do with giving thanks? Well, we have to remember who David was. David was the king as well, and a judge over Israel. And as the king, he was the one who had, could rule over, and was the first rule of a king is to rule with equity and fairness over all the people. And so there is an environment that's established over the kingdom that's going to produce a reality where people should be able to feel peace and rest, but they can only do so if they feel secure in the fairness of what's before them. We know that people can flourish when there's this feeling of justice in the whole environment. And just the opposite, if there's a feeling of injustice, if there's a feeling that people don't belong somewhere or they feel afraid especially if that comes from a leader then there's a sense of un inability to be able to flourish i would say that some of the divisiveness of in our in our own nation today is because people do not feel secure they feel like there's not fairness in the thrones of justice and so even though perhaps we can't have any 
we don't have much of an impact in what's happening on a national level, we do, each one of us, has a role that we can play over the, whether there's justice, whether there's equity, whether there's fairness in our own lives, in the places where we reside or where we work or where we worship, even here, we have a role to play in whether this environment is one of equity and fairness. So what's the takeaway from this verse, verse 5? It's up to each and every one of us to work in our civil society and in the church to make sure that justice abounds and that there's an atmosphere where all of us are freed up to be able to give thanks to the Lord's name. The final verse of the psalm makes this expectation very clear. It says that all of us have an important part to play in helping to make worship meaningful for everyone. Here's the verse. For the sake of the Lord, our God's house, I will pray for your good. In this verse, David takes responsibility for his own role in making the worship of the community wholesome and complete. And because we know that this psalm was written not just for David, but for everybody who was singing on their way up to the temple, the clear implication is that all of us have this responsibility, not just the pastor, not just the preacher for the day, but not just the leaders in the congregation, but everybody has a responsibility to pray for and to work for the good of this worshiping community. What this means is that you and I should be praying for the good of God's house, to use this terminology. We should be praying for that. I think of this, for example, when everybody comes to, to communion, as we will in just a few minutes. Instead of only thinking about praying for ourselves, what about praying for each person that you see coming as you're watching them come forward? Or as they're here, some of them praying at the altar? What if we prayed for one another? Those that we know by name and those we don't know just to pray for them. What a way to be praying for God's good. We should strive for the well-being of the church. We should intercede for the peace and rest, the shalom and shalva of all our fellow believers. This petition, which says, I will pray for you good, has no boundary. Everyone who comes through those doors should feel beloved by God and beloved by all of us so that they may feel peace and rest. Twenty years ago this summer, in 1999, um, I accepted an offer to be the professor on my sabbatical semester for a new Methodist seminary in Moscow, Russia. Now, this was uh, an interesting experience because Russia at that time was still a very depressed, it had just come out of communism, and it was a depressed, dirty, um, suspicious, polluted place. <laughs> and it was not a very pleasant environment, and so for us to bring our family, 
uh, felt like it was uh, kind of a risk. And yet we'd also heard that people, many people were coming to Jesus. And there was a lot of excitement about what God was doing there. And so we thought, okay, we'll be a part of this. So this is us uh, 20 years ago. You can tell it's 20 years ago because I have a mustache, which is really out of style now. And also you can tell it's 20 years ago because the little boy on the left is getting married in three weeks. Uh, we knew that God's Spirit was at work. But we also saw that as soon as we arrived there, right away, it was clear that no one trusted anyone after all those years of communism. They wouldn't, no one would look at one another if you met them at the on the street. No, no, kept, no making eye contact. People were totally quiet on the subway. There would be no, no talking whatsoever. People would wear very plain clothing, nothing that stood out so that anyone would notice them. And most, most obviously, people would scurry from place to place very quickly, making sure that they would get into their apartment as soon as they could and lock the door and close the door. This was the one outside our apartment. And what we noticed was that everyone had multiple doors and multiple locks, <laughs> not just to keep out the crime, but also because they were worried that somebody might report on them. And so it was to keep out people who might betray them to the authorities. So much suspicion. Our anxiety didn't get any better when we saw where we were going to live for the nine weeks. A dilapidated, ugly, <laughs> littered apartment, this is it, where the elevator shaft smelled like urine, and we were supposed to be there with my family. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, this building was identical to 37,000 identical apartment buildings in Moscow that are still there today. <laughs> it's uh, kind of depressing, actually. But in spite of all these challenges, we were certain that God had called us there. And in fact, I eventually began teach, uh, enjoying my teaching, and our family grew to love the other students. These were Christian believers from all over Russia who were training to be in ministry. Uh, we found out that these students were from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds because Russia is much more diverse than you might imagine. And in addition to Slavic Russians, there were people from Korean background and Uzbeki background, people from the Caucasus Mountains near Chechnya. All these people were our students. And it was wonderful to get to know them. One day, Lena, who was uh, one of my favorite students uh, of course, faculty are never supposed to have favorite students, but uh, uh, she, she was a wonderful young woman, and she was a Korean, ethnic Korean from, who had been raised in Uzbekistan, and she invited us and our family and all the students over to her house for a small house church gathering, and we went over that evening, and her apartment building was just like ours, uh, the one that you're seeing there. Uh, it was 
dilapidated like ours. It had unpleasant smells like ours, maybe a little worse. And we went up to her apartment. The elevator didn't even work. And so we had to climb multiple sets of stairs. We got up there and we went into the apartment. There was no decoration on the wall. She had no money. There was very little furniture in the house, in the apartment, small. We walked in, though, and there was laughing and there was joking because these people were rejoicing because they were going to the Lord's house. They were going to worship together. And we got there, and even though there was such bleakness outside, such harshness, we went in, and there was amazingly fervent praying and singing like we'd never experienced before. And this deep, even though we understood not a word that was said, it was so clear that we were worshiping the same Jesus. It was beautiful. It was so precious. Our kids loved it. We loved it. All the while we were worshiping, which went on for quite a while, we could smell these aromas, these wonderful aromas as contrast to the other smells, these beautiful aromas of beef and garlic and carrots and onions because Lena was in the kitchen cooking this Uzbeki feast for us that we were going to be eating in just a few minutes. And so she prepared it, worship was over, and it was time for us to have dinner. But we wondered, where are we going to eat it? There's no table in this apartment. But just then, several of the guys brought in this huge wooden plank and put it down on a couple cardboard boxes. And that became our table. It was big enough to accommodate everybody. It was big, wooden plank. And we wondered, where did that come from? And then we noticed that the wooden plank had hinges on it. <laughs> the guys had taken one of the interior doors off its hinges. And that became our table. And I was struck by the fact that that door, which had been meant to keep out anxiety and tension and oppression, was now the table that allowed us to experience peace and rest, shalom and shalva, that it was a table for fellowship. In just a few minutes, you're going to come to this table, this railing. I don't know what the tensions are or the anxieties in your life, but you too can experience shalom and shalva, peace and rest here. And whatever the oppressions that are outside, they're broken down in that the thing that made those happen can become the table that's set for our fellowship as we come together in the Lord. And so I pray that that will be true for us this morning. Let's pray.